Initial reports were sketchy. A two-sentence story published four days later in the New York Times under the headline, Dylan Hurt in Cycle Mishap, said he was under a doctor's care. Rumors spread over the following months that he was gravely injured, blind, or disfigured. Over the years, he would indicate in interviews that he broke a vertebrae or got a concussion. But without a police report, there's no official record of the crash. Bob Dylan tumbled from a Triumph motorcycle on a sunny Friday morning in Woodstock, New York, 57 years ago, on July 29, 1966. And the banged-up musician holed up in the mountains of upstate New York for months afterward, dramatically altering the trajectory of his, up until that point, incredible career. He was seen as the, the voice of a generation. He'd written, Blown in the Wind, The Times They Are a Change in, and, and Like a Rolling Stone. It's the most analyzed music, uh, the most analyzed uh, motorcycle crash in pop culture history. But the details have been as hard to pin down as the meaning of his song lyrics. Biographers, reporters, and Dylanologists digging into this period of his life and career have uncovered sometimes contradictory information. The sun got in his eyes. The bike slipped on an oily patch. He flew off the bike. He simply tipped over. He broke his back. He got a concussion. That is, unless he didn't really hurt himself. Maybe the crash itself was a tall tale, which would fit into the Dylan lore. Dylan himself has talked about the crash, but often in vague ways. He wrote in his memoir, I had been in a motorcycle accident and I'd been hurt, but I recovered. The few known witnesses have remained tight-lipped. Ambiguity surrounding the accident that indelibly marked the 25-year-old Bob Dylan's life and music has helped to take on near-mythic dimensions. But the accident gave Dylan a chance to rest and hit reset and revive himself. Some Dylan historians have suggested that the motorcycle wreck may have saved his life. He was exhausted from constant touring, and according to some accounts, he was taking large amounts of amphetamines while on the road that year. After the accident, tour dates were canceled, and he lay low in Woodstock. Dylan told a New York Daily News reporter who found him there in May of 1967 that he'd been seeing close friends, poring over books by people you've never heard of, and thinking about where he was going. In truth, he and the band... We're gathering at a house called Big Pink and beginning to write and record music again. It wasn't long after this that he would team up with Johnny Cash, but they would only release one song at the time, but the two would write several songs together and, and remain lifelong friends. And then a few years after he returned to making music, Bob Dylan would go on to make several explicitly Christian albums. And he would say later in interviews, he'd say repeatedly that his favorite song, the, the favorite song that he wrote is about the arrest of Christ. It's actually called In the Garden. It's his favorite song. When they came for him in the garden, did they know? When they came for him in the garden, did they know? Did they know that he was the Son of God? Did they know that he was Lord? When they came for him in the garden, did they know? 
When he rose from the dead, did they believe? When he rose from the dead, did they believe? He said, all power is given to me on heaven and on earth. Did they know right then and there what that power was worth when they came for him in the garden? Did they know? Turn to Leviticus chapter 25. That's all bonus for you today. (laughs) Turn to Leviticus chapter 25. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and then the final verse of the chapter, verse 55. Leviticus 25, verse 1 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You should not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you and for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. And then verse 55 says, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Let's pray again. Father, I pray that what we, what we need today you would give us, that you would feed us from your word today, that we might have eyes and ears to hear so that our mouths and our hearts might praise our creator and giver of all good things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've said this before, but I believe, there's a, I believe there's a massive kind of lack of understanding amongst believers today when it comes to the Sabbath, um, whether it's from the, from the cult of Seventh-day Adventism, which serves to kind of bind the consciences of believers to the law in ways that the gospel frees us to the blue laws, to so-called Christians who, who freely proclaim that Sunday is for me and my family. There's a clear lack of knowledge and, and discernment regarding the Lord's good gift of Sabbath rest. In fact, 1 John chapter 5 it says clearly to us, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The commandments of God are not burdensome. The Christian Sabbath is a good gift of God. And it was given to uh, to us for the good of his people and the glory of his name. But this passage here, these verses in Leviticus 25, it's not about a weekly Sabbath but one that lasts a year. So this, is this passage, um, as we read this, is this only for those of us in here who, 
happen to be farmers or who work the land in some way? Or is there application in here for all of us, regardless of the work that we do and whether or not we happen to have a green thumb? Well, one of the truths that I, that I hope and pray that you've seen um, as we've studied through the book of Leviticus this year is that there is, there is rich application through all of this for us as New Testament believers, as Christians. This chapter begins in, in verse 1 by saying this, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, compare that to the, to the opening of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 1.1, which says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So what we're seeing here, this section really goes all the way through the end of the book, chapters 25, 6, and 7. We're almost there. Um, what we're seeing here is, is kind of a prequel. Um, these words were spoken to Moses as he was on the mountain, as opposed to most of the rest of Leviticus, which was given to Moses at the, at the door of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. In fact, Exodus closes um, with the construction of the tabernacle, so it's, it's built, it's completed, and then Leviticus opens with Moses receiving these laws, which are essentially about worship and holiness, and he receives them at the entrance to the tabernacle. But now here, as we come to the end of Leviticus, we have a kind of a flashback, so to speak, um, to Moses on Mount Sinai, where he had received the covenant laws, where he had received the Ten Commandments. And so these final three chapters of Leviticus, they serve as a kind of a fitting conclusion to the covenant requirements for two reasons. First, this is exactly the formula of Exodus. So when the Lord finished giving the people through Moses the, the covenant laws of Exodus, really chapters 20 through, through chapter 31, he focuses their attention then on the sign of the covenant. The, the covenant sign in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 17 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Anyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, and the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So, so this is the Lord's way of saying, here's how you show covenant faithfulness to my law, keep the Sabbath. So obviously they're called to keep all of the law, but keep the Sabbath, he says. In fact, one could argue that a, that a failure to keep the Sabbath is very often one of the first laws that is broken because 
Because Sabbath keeping, or, or really a, a failure to keep the Sabbath, is at its, at its core, it's, it's selfishness and ingratitude. Well, after giving the people these laws in Leviticus, largely pertaining to, to covenant worship, how you are to come and worship me, the Lord says, he then gives, this, uh, gives his people the, the gift of a Sabbath year. And then we'll see next week, Lord willing, as we look at the rest of the chapter, he actually gives them a super Sabbath, a year of jubilee. Now, if you look closely at these things, um, you can actually see that the Sabbath is about redemption. The Sabbath is about redemption. Again, the, verse 55, the final verse of the chapter. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He has redeemed them. He has brought them out of their slavery. The Lord has redeemed them from their slavery, brought them to himself. Redemption brings rest. Redemption brings rest. And then the second reason that these three chapters are kind of a, a fitting conclusion to the covenant laws is actually in chapter 26. Uh, we will get there sometime, whenever we get there. We will get there eventually, but it is a, a chapter of, of promises of blessings and curses. And, and, and that idea of uh, uh, if, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. That idea is, is really what, uh, what all uh, ancient Near East covenants contained. All of them contained this, whether they were in the Bible or just cultural around them. In other words, here's why this is important. See, we as Christians understand, as Paul said to Timothy, that all Scripture is inspired by God and, and profitable. We understand that as God's people. Uh, we recognize, therefore, that this is binding law because it is the inspired and authoritative Word of God. But others, even those outside of God's covenant uh, people, uh, those living around Israel, they would have recognized this pattern of covenant language and they would have seen this as Israel's law, Israel's civic law. This was, this was their agreement with their God, they would have said. And then one last observation before we look at the actual text of these verses. Leviticus chapters 25, 26, and 27 they also serve as a kind of a, a natural transition into the book of Numbers, where the people of Israel finally leave Mount Sinai and head toward the promised land. And so each of these chapters deal with issues concerning how Israel would live when they came into the promised land. Now you have to remember... Um, if you know the Bible, you know that they would end up spending 40 years, a whole generation, wandering in the wilderness. But that sin hasn't happened yet. That grumbling and complaining. They think they're going to get up, pack up their stuff, and head straight into the promised land. That's how they're viewing this. Um, they find out later because of their own sin that they're going to have to wait and wander in the wilderness. But this was these... Three chapters give instructions for how they are to live when they come into the land that was the, and this land was the, uh, was the promise, uh, the fulfillment of the covenant promises to them. This was the promised land. 
and, and yet we know that this land is, is, is but, a, but a type and shadow of the promised land to come. We'll get there. So the covenant was promised back in Exodus chapter 19. In fact, God had said to the people, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the covenant was promised. The covenant law has been given all the way from the rest of Exodus and through the book of Leviticus. And Israel is preparing to march boldly into Canaan. Their duty now is to maintain faith in their Redeemer, to carry out His mission of filling the earth with His righteousness. And so as we think about the anticipation of a place, the promised land, This entire chapter illustrates for us the fundamental importance that the Lord placed on three uh, parts of of the Israelites' ordinary lives. The first is close family relationships. These things become important for the people of Israel. Land ownership, important for the people of Israel. And a genuine observation of the Sabbath. Now, those first two are going to become obvious next week. We'll come back to them. But the Sabbath principle is where we begin here. And the first principle truth that we can see here is this. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy the fruit of your labors. Look at verse 3. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. Now, the point of verse 3 there is actually pretty clear. But this doesn't mean that we can just skip over it. The Lord here is instructing the Israelites, first of all, to work the land. Work the land. Now, Now, let's just stop right there. Work. The Lord created mankind to work. This, this used to go without saying. But we live in a society that is increasingly undervaluing work, especially hard work, especially manual work. My generation, my generation was told so many times that we should work smarter, not harder. And there, there might be some good advice mixed in with that. But mostly, that had the effect of telling my contemporaries, don't work hard. What has that done You know the answers to this. What has that done to the children of my generation? It's had the effect of saying, go to college so that you don't have to engage in manual labor, build up a whole pile of debt to do it, and then demand student loan relief so you can live in your van and be an influencer. But God created mankind to work. Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. 
And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and every, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then Genesis chapter 2 actually goes back and fills in some of, the, some of the details, some of the gaps in that. And it says this, And when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, so man's work was directly connected actually to his eating. This seems like basic life stuff, and, and I know that in, in many ways I'm preaching to the choir in here. Um, we have a church filled with people who work, young men who work. We appreciate that. You guys are going to be the ones that change the world, at least in Bell Fountain, by working. Because that's what God created you to do. Seems like basic, and yet in a, letter, in a letter of only three chapters, Paul spends half a chapter addressing this very issue. There's only three chapters in the book of Second Thessalonians, and he spends half a chapter talking directly about this. Listen to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you, um, how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we work night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to, have, uh, to give you in ourselves an example to imitate for even if for even when we were with you we did not give you this command if anyone is not we would give you this command sorry if anyone is not willing to work let him not eat for we hear that some among you walk in idleness not busy at work but busy bodies now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living Anyone who um, works hard, many of you, you know the satisfaction of taking a step back and enjoying the fruit of your labors, right? It could be small, like the smell of freshly cut grass, especially when you've worked so hard on the lawn and the flower beds and all of those things in your own yard. It could be the satisfaction of a well-built stack of firewood, knowing that your home is ready for the winter. It 
could be something bigger like a home you built with your own hands or the business that you built from scratch, the company that you work for and are helping to build. There's a satisfaction in those things. Now, from my perspective, this is one of the things that I love about Redemption Bible Church. Even though my job is much different from most of yours, allow me just, just a moment to boast, um, even though as the Apostle Paul says, I'm speaking like a madman, even in what I'm about to say, I understand that it is God who has given the growth. So as he says in 1 Corinthians, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Ten years ago, there were 40 or 50 of us at most, one or two kids total. I will fully acknowledge that RBC, that this church is a work of God. At the same time, he uses ordinary means to accomplish his will. And so there is a satisfaction that the past 12 years of labor, of planting and watering, and I'm not alone in that at all, don't misunderstand, those years have not been in vain. This is why Paul will refer to the law a little bit later when he says the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing of the crop. It is God's good blessing that we are able to share in the fruit of our labors. And this isn't simply spiritual. Sometimes we feel guilty about having something nice because we've worked hard, right? We feel guilty about buying a new car. We feel guilty about having a nice house or, or whatever it is. When, when we've worked hard for those things. But this is God's good gift, even to share in these things materially. The work of sowing and pruning and gathering in is a gracious gift of God. The preacher of Ecclesiastes in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, in his wisdom, he had this to say. He said, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? But if you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that it's all dust in the wind. Over and over and over. Vanity of vanities. And yet, even though all of this is dust in the wind, we are able, because of a good gift of God, to enjoy the fruit of our labors. So work hard. And enjoy sitting by the pool on vacation. Or whatever it is. Enjoy it. Knowing that it is a good gift of God. It is right and good to enjoy the fruit of your labors because it is a gift from the hand of God. And to do so correctly is actually a Sabbath acknowledgement. A Sabbath acknowledgement. Look at verse 2. I know I'm kind of not going in order here, but in verse 2 he says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Jump down to verse 4. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. So every seventh year, the land of Israel had to keep a, a complete Sabbath. No sowing, no pruning, no harvesting. Now, as someone who is um, 
a few generations removed from living on a family farm. Um, to my eyes, this, this seems like an odd law. It's almost a personification of the land. It's as if the land is just tired from all of its work and, and needs a year off, needs some rest. There's probably some truth to that. Uh, I'm told by those who understand land and soil management that this law would provide care for the land and, and it would be more productive over time. And I know that many of you could give more insight into those matters than me. But by giving the land a Sabbath rest, the people were also acknowledging that this land was the fulfillment of God's promise to them. The Lord had promised this land. Actually, he promised it in, in many places, all the way back in, in Genesis chapter 12. But listen to what he says in Exodus 33, verse 1. This is the promise there. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. The Sabbath year. This, this Sabbath year was a reminder that the land is not really theirs. It belongs to God. In fact, the whole earth is the Lord's. This land is promised to this nation, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, when you consider this law, you understand, as you, as you put yourself in their shoes, you understand that the people would not only need to plan ahead and store up for this year, but they also would clearly, they clearly needed to trust that the Lord would provide for his people. Think back to the previous chapters where the Lord um, addressed really the liturgical calendar of the Israelites. Remember, following a weekly Sabbath, Chapter 23 addresses these things. He also, he also had given them commands for regular feasts and festivals that were kind of, uh, those feasts and festivals were, were couched in their agricultural seasons. We talked about this a few weeks ago. But even in the midst of that, in the midst of their calendar, their sort of planting and sowing, sowing and reaping calendar, in the midst of that was their celebration of the Passover. So all of this is wrapped up in their redemption from slavery in Egypt. That's why I wanted to be sure to read verse 55. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the Sabbath year is designed to remind the people that all that they have is a good gift of God. It is an acknowledgment. That if, if Yahweh could redeem them from Egypt and give them the promised land, surely he could meet their physical needs for merely one year of rest. But it's one thing, it, it, it's one thing to plan ahead for years of famine or other hardships. Some of us do that, right? You sock away some funds for a rainy day or to use this imagery, a, a not-so-rainy day, right? You can goods and set them aside for when stuff isn't growing. It's another thing to let the land sit unworked during perfectly good years. I, I imagine that sometimes those Sabbath years 
were perfect growing years, right? Where there was just the right amount of rain, just the right amount of sun, just the right amount of heat, and they could only look at their empty fields. But if the people truly desired to be a holy nation, they would obediently set aside the seventh year as belonging to the Lord. I just want to say, kind of as an aside, there's very little proof in the rest of the Old Testament that they ever actually did this. There's some hints here and there that maybe they did, but it's pretty clear that these people who did not trust the Lord to provide for them when they get to the manna part in the book of Numbers, where they wanted to go back to Egypt immediately, when they get there and said, did you bring us out here to kill us? Bring us out of here so we'd starve to death. We had onions and garlic in Egypt. All we have is this bread out here. They complain and complain and complain, and they did not celebrate the Sabbath. But this year of rest, as it is given in this law, it didn't simply mean that the, that the people could spend a year on the sofa or at the lake. This was a year of enjoying God's promise fulfilled. Now, I've said fulfilled several times, but it's not really fulfilled. This is eschatological. This looks forward to the true and real promised land. This looks forward to the the true rest from our labors that can only happen in Christ. So this is about our rest in salvation, but it also points to a final fulfillment, a final prosperity for God's people. And even even the land, even the land that has been groaning, waiting for the day, as Romans chapter 8 tells us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. This is a looking forward to the day when we are with Christ forever. And, th- and then finally, look at verses 6 and 7, where they have all things in common. Verses 6 and 7, the Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So in this Sabbath year, there's kind of two different ways to interpret this. Either this means, since verses 4 and 5 says that they're not to go and harvest, so either this means the fields are open for anybody, not just the landowner, Or it means that in the other years, they've gathered enough to provide for everybody. Either way, in this Sabbath year, all people, regardless of their their socioeconomic status, and even all of the animals, are free to go and eat of the food. They're free to go out into the fields and the vineyards and gather their own foods. So So they held all things in common. 
And so the rich landowners were not given preferential treatment over their slaves and servants. This was an acknowledgement of the entire covenant community, of all of the people of Israel, that the land belonged to God and that all that they had was from him. This was, a, this was a practical way to proclaim with their actions the words of David in Psalm 24. David said this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it on the rivers. Do we really believe that everything is the Lord's? Then we are to live like it. Psalm 89. O Lord God of hosts, Who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. See, under this law, one year in seven, the people people were to catch a glimpse of Eden. They were to be perfectly at rest with the Lord and finding every tree good for food. What about for Christians? What about for Christians? Well, Acts chapter 2. Turn over to Acts 2. Tells us that this is what the church is to be like. I'll start reading in verse 40. Acts 2, 40 says, And with many other words he, that is Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It should be the regular pattern of church life. The the Sabbath year here. This is what life in the church is like all the time. We're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers making sure that none are left behind, caring for one another, meeting each other's needs. The Sabbath year is a a glimpse of eternity. It's so much better even than Eden. That's what the church is. The church and all of the activity that we see here in these verses, all of those things that they're doing, that we do as a church, All of this is a look into the future that is in store for those who are a part of God's covenant people. 
And so we come together and acknowledge the Sabbath rest of our God that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And as we do, we enjoy the fruit of our labors with glad and generous hearts, knowing that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. We share all things in common because we know that all that we have, especially the gift of redemption in Jesus Christ, all that we have has come from our God and Savior. And so this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper, we ought to come with hearts filled with gladness and rejoicing, longing for the day when we will finally be at rest at his table with him face to face, knowing that Monday ain't coming. Tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and go to work. You're going to have to face those things that we face, those things that you left behind on Friday or whenever, that you knew you were going to have to deal with next week. They're there. But one day, that stuff's all going to be gone. We'll still work. We'll still work in eternity. But that work won't be toil. It won't be the, the thistles and the, and, and, the, and the vines growing up choking out the crops. It's going to be a work that is perfect. It's going to be an enjoyment of the good things that God continues to give us. And we long for that day. Let's pray together. Father, it is our prayer that we would keep our eyes on eternity, an eternity that is real and that will be with Jesus Christ for all who have confessed and believed, for all who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. You have given the right to be called children of God. You have given to us eternal life. We long for that, Lord. We long for the day when all of the junk of this world will be gone, the stresses and the difficulty and the the sin and the stuff that just drives us crazy in this world, Lord, that we can't wait to be done with. Lord, all that will be gone and we will, we will sit with our Savior. We will behold Him face to face. We will eat and drink and be glad. Father, as we come to the table, we come with thankful hearts, rejoicing that You have sent Your only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We come to proclaim the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his death for the forgiveness of sins, his resurrection to the glory eternal, his ascension to the right hand of the Father where he always lives to intercede for us. Father, we come rejoicing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.